reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate it, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard. Or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The word of our Lord. Well, good morning. What a time already, amen? amen? It's almost like we could just close up shop, go down and have coffee, and, and enjoy, the, enjoy the fellowship. I'm glad to be with you, and especially those who are down in the South Campus, we can see you, and we're glad to, that you're here this morning. And so let us open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into what the word has for us this morning. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, it was the romantic poet of the 18th century, Robert Southey, who said, I could believe in Christ if he did not drag behind him his leprous bride, well, gee, why doesn't he just tell us what he really feels? What he really thinks? Ouch. But this is quite a cutting statement and assessment of the church. But he's not alone. Many have confessed that they would gladly follow Christ if they just didn't have to put up with the ones who followed after him. That they just would not like to go to church. They, have, uh, they just 
don't want the ones that uh, Christ loves and the one that he makes himself dear to. But such a sediment has a wrong view of the church, at least here on earth. They expect perfection of Christ's bride. However, those who are part of Christ's church know that we are not an ideal, invisible, philosophical abstraction, but a visible gathering of imperfect folks working out their salvation one day at a time. That's who we are. This is ECF. This was the Corinthian church. And we're just real people, flawed to the hilt, but saints nonetheless called by God. So last week, Pastor Reed reminded us that the church in Corinth was at risk of messing up what was vital to every church, which is unity. Paul was concerned about this group because unity is an essential trait of God and his kingdom. God is a triunity, but he works as one. Creation is made up of very many facets, but it operates as one. Scripture is made up of many people who have written, many many places where it is written, but yet it is the same narrative from Genesis to Revelation. Marriage is the joining of two people, a man and a woman, to become one and to operate as one. So unity is very important in God's kingdom. So today in 1 Corinthians 5, we see that this is not a passage that stands alone. It's not a one that is uh, an entity that stands all in itself, but a continuation of the context set in chapter 1. If, if, we are, if they are to survive, they will have to maintain the unity in Christ and not split off into factions and act as though they are part, uh, not part of one another. There's a common call. We're one in Christ. We are in this together. Paul says, in so many words, it seems, however, that the Corinthians were intent of practicing the opposite of what he was teaching them. It, they, it seems as though they had no intention of, of carrying out what he was bringing to them in, in the Lord. It appears that they had no desire to worship as one body. In other words, they were their own worst enemy, and Paul was like the fireman putting out the fires that threatened to bring down the whole church. So in our text, we have what I think is probably the greatest challenge to date by allowing sin to occur as though it posed no menace to the unity in Christ and the overall health of the body. And to address this, the apostle asked three questions. What are you doing? Why could you allow this? And when will you ever learn? What are you doing? Why could you allow this? And lastly, when will you ever learn? So then, our first question, what are you doing? If you look in the first two verses, it says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is the question one asks when we come upon 
somebody doing something that is totally mind-boggling. Somebody that you, something that you wouldn't even think that they would even attempt to do in the first place. It's kind of like somebody, you're seeing somebody who's going to take a fork, a metal fork, and put it into the electrical outlet. And you're saying, what are you doing? And of course, if you have kids, sometimes we ask that question a lot. What are you doing? It's incomprehensible that one would do, put a fork into the, into the electric socket. And, and Paul is, is bewildered by the fact that they would be so arrogant and dense in the head to allow an illicit relationship to occur on their watch. A relationship that Paul points out, by the way, that even the pagan world around them considered not normal or appropriate. No one in his right mind would think it's okay for a son to be converting with his stepmom. Well, commentators offer some reasoning for this man's actions. One is that he was afraid that his stepmom would, would marry someone else, thereby losing his family inheritance. Well, better, I guess, that he marry her lest someone else gets to be the family uh, money, correct? Or that he was practicing chivalry by protecting her dowry from her father. But Paul's opinion was that there was no reason in the world or scripture one could ever justify this sin. And for your homework this afternoon, you can check out Leviticus chapter 18 and 20 verse 11 and Deuteronomy 27 verse 20. And these will prove how this relationship violated scripture left, right, and center. So with this comes the question, what are you doing? This is not a good situation. No matter how you try to justify it, this is an, an essential question for all Christians to ask another believer if you know of a sinful relationship or has put herself in a compromising position. We need to ask that question. What are you doing? We need to be accountable for one another. Like Paul, you and I and every believer are responsible for one another. We must ask the question, what are you doing? What are you thinking? In verse 12, it says, For what have I do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And to answer Cain's question when he said, Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. We are our brother's keeper. We are in this together. And the second question is, Why are you doing this? Looking. Uh, verse 2 and verse 6. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And he goes in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Your reaction, Paul says, to this situation is not good. In fact, you are nothing short of wrong. Period. He makes no bones about that. Why would they behave in such a way is, it's, is a good question to put forth at this point. Why are they behaving this way? Well, there's an opinion amongst the scholars that the people involved were rich and influential and had great prominence. Even though they were involved in a scandalous relationship, the church did not want to upset them as they 
the money and the prominence would leave the the uh, the congregation, and that they would in in their convoluted thinking they would think that hey we're going to lose standing within the community. Well, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Well, Paul is beside himself at this point. He can't believe that they're boasting and so swelled up with pride to the point of arrogance that he begins to address it from a corporate viewpoint. He starts by asking, don't you know if you allow this to continue, it will infect the whole body? The corporate opinion of this church is starkly obvious. And the apostle declares your, uh, your, rea- your reaction, your handling of this sin is totally wrong. He's beside himself. He's bewildered. He can't believe that this congregation is allowing this thing to occur. So what does he say? How does he address them? He said, instead of your arrogant boasting, you should be in mourning. You shouldn't be hanging your head high. You should be hanging your head low. You shouldn't be boasting about this. You shouldn't be so arrogant. Your pride has made you blind to the spiritual condition of this man. And you're part and parcel to the sin within your midst. The word mourn in verse 2 refers to a corporate sense of sorrow over sin within the body. It's the same, it's the same word used in Matthew 9.15 to mourn over the death of a loved one. This Christian, this Christian brother was in their body had been, has exposed himself to something that would kill him spiritually. And that was bringing defamation to the character of the, of the congregation. And instead of the congregation taking their part and saying, hey, this can't happen in our midst. This is not right. They were so blinded by their own arrogance, so blinded by their pride that they had no care for the brother. They only had care to what would happen to them as, as a body. In Revelation 18, 11, and 15, the word, and 19, the word is described grief over a great loss. His rebuke of their arrogance is a call for them to mourn over sin and demonstrate corporate repentance to correct the repulsive action within their family. They're saying, what are you doing? How can you allow this? Don't you understand that what's going on is you're bringing death into, the, into our family? Much like Israel of old, who just continued on and on in their sin and then had no regard for the righteousness of God. Or may it never be an ECF that we are more concerned about the status of an individual more than we are about the holiness of God and care for the soul. May we pay attention to what Paul was saying. May we not become so prideful or arrogant to to not understand that the holiness of God and our souls are far more important than public standing.
Well, the third question the apostle asks is, when will you ever learn? These questions are actually a follow-through on what he said in 1 Corinthians 4.21. He said, what do you wish? Shall I come to you as a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? As I read this chapter, and I'm sure you picked up on it as well, Paul was becoming exasperated and spoke his mind out loud. When will you ever learn? Sort of like when Jesus answered the question to Philip, when Philip says, show us the Father, and he goes, have I been with you that long that you haven't realized that I and the Father are one? When will you learn that, all, uh, that, that you're all at risk by your actions. You're not exempt from the consequences of this forbidden relationship before the Lord. And when, with this last query, with this last question, Paul lays out for us five realities that they needed to take to heart. And for the sake of time, I, I'll, I will tell you the, the references and you can read them later. But the first reality is found in verses 2 and 3. Where Paul says, the guy is out. He's been expelled. He's out. This is not a suggestion. It wasn't a suggestion. He wasn't putting it up for discussion. He didn't say, hey, form a panel. Come back to me with your findings and tell me what you think. No, it was not a suggestion. It was not up for discussion. He says, I have pronounced, Paul says, I have pronounced judgment and he's out. He's out for being disloyal to the covenant, implicating the whole church in his sin. And you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's out for the sake of the whole church. The second reality is found in verses 4 and 5, where he says, He's to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul may be saved. Well, can't you hear the whistling going through the teeth there? Can't you hear them asking Paul saying, wait a minute, Paul, isn't this kind of harsh? Isn't this kind of overkill? I mean, what do you mean? Do we stone him? Do we take him out and stone him now? Are we to wish him literally dead by the hand of Satan? Well, the best way to interpret this seems to be to turn the man out to the world, to expel him, to excommunicate communicate him and to withhold the privileges of being a church member which is the love and care he would receive from the body in the hope that he would see the light and repent that's really the goal of all discipline if we miss that then we don't we don't know what biblical discipline is we want restoration we want repentance we want joy back into the into the family but the third reality is found in verses 6 and 7. You're all at risk. This is not a singular problem. It's a, a body problem. You're in this all together. We're all in this together. Paul doesn't direct his warning at the man solely, but the whole bunch, all of the congregation. He said, if you're going to survive, you must purge out the yeast. There's a sin left, to, because sin left will infect the whole body. One bad apple does spoil the whole crop in this case. 
The fourth reality is found in verse 8, the reality of being saints. From chapter 1, we're called to be saints set apart for God. And in chapter 3, he tells us that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a reality every Christian must keep in mind. That we are not what we used to be. We haven't been saved to just to continue on the way that we were. We were called to be changed. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, therefore he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new in Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. That the reality is, is that we must keep in mind that we are called to put off malice. To put off wickedness, drunkenness, and so on. And the verse 8 is not a reference to the Lord's table where he says that, that we are to take part in the festival. But a call to remember that all of life as a believer is to be lived as a celebration unto him, lived in holiness and moral purity. We've been called into something greater than the world could ever offer. We've been called in to have a festival, a celebration, a lifelong, everyday experience with Jesus Christ. And the last reality is listed in verses 9 through 13. Which is this, the reality of the sin inside the camp, not outside the camp, that should concern the church mostly. God will take care of the outside. We need to take care of the inside. Jesus ate with the publicans and sinners. But he rebuked those who claimed to be righteous and persistent in their sins. Well, walk in contradiction. If we don't walk to walk, or if we're going to talk to talk, we've got to walk to walk. Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us today that the whole church is responsible to love and to nurture and to discipline those within its care. Because the Lord will take care of the unsaved. We're called to take care of one another because we're in this together. We can't survive without one another. And as this letter will continue when you go into chapter 12 and chapter 14, you'll, Paul will demonstrate even more how important we are as a body. But we're in this together. We're not separate entities. We're not an island unto ourselves. No matter what Paul's timing says, you can't be a rock. The redeemed are to exhort one another under good works. We're to remind one another of the goodness of God. It is interesting that in all the letters that Paul wrote, this is the most forceful and direct teaching about the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God needing to be a corporate endeavor. In all the other letters he wrote to Timothy and Titus and 
Colossians, he was most intense with the Corinthians. Bonhoeffer said, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. We need it. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. God saved us into a body. He saved us into a family, into a nation. He saved us so that we could be in this whole thing together and walk together and help one another and show the world that, yes, it can be done no matter what. Well, this passage is definitely timely for us today. We have witnessed as a body the ordinance of baptism and now as a group now as a group we'll partake of the Lord's table together. We are many, but it will be done unified. It will be done simultaneously as one collective. And there's good reasons for this. A present reality that we all owe our lives to, which is in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Everyone in this building who has been born again realizes because of Christ it's the only means by which the old leaven can be purged. We're not testifying today that we are all complete and can do this in and of ourselves. If you're a visitor this morning and perhaps not a Christian you're witnessing an act of humility practice on a corporate scale because each one of us who's been born again, who's been filled with the spirit of God, who calls himself a son or a daughter of God we understand as a collective as a family as a holy nation under Christ that we cannot possibly do this without the sacrificial lamb who went to the cross on our behalf there's no self-made people here, only those who are dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. So together as one, we're declaring to the world and to each other, we all need Christ. 